power on. Verify. Maddox, Bruce, Commander. Current assignment, Associate Chair of Robotics, Daystrom Technological Institute. Major papers... Yes, yes, yes. Suffice it to say he's an expert. Commander, is your contention that Lieutenant Commander Data is not a sentient being and therefore not entitled to all the rights reserved for all life forms within this Federation? Data is not sentient, no. Commander, would you enlighten us? What is required for sentience? Intelligence, self-awareness, consciousness. Prove to the court that I am sentient. This is absurd. We all know you're sentient. So I'm sentient, but Commander Data is not. That's right. Uh-huh. Why? Why am I sentient? Well, you are self-aware. Ah, oh, that's the second of your criteria. Let's deal with the first, intelligence. Is Commander Data intelligent? Yes. It has the ability to learn and understand and to cope with new situations. Like this hearing? Yes. What about self-awareness? What does that mean? Why, why am I self-aware? Because you are conscious of your existence and actions. You are aware of yourself and your own ego. Commander Data, what are you doing now? I'm taking part in a legal hearing to determine my rights and status. Am I a person or property? And what's at stake? My right to choose. Perhaps my very life. My rights. My status, my right to choose. My life. Well, it seems reasonably self-aware to me, Commander. I'm waiting. This is exceedingly difficult. Do you like Commander Data? I... I don't know it well enough to like or dislike it. But you admire him. Oh, yes. It is an extraordinary piece of engineering and programming. Yes, you have said that. Commander, you have devoted your life to the study of cybernetics in general. Yes. And Commander Data in particular. Yes. And now you propose to dismantle him. So that I can learn from it and construct more. How many more? As many as are needed. Hundreds, thousands if necessary. There is no limit. A single data, and forgive me, Commander, is a curiosity. A wonder even, but thousands of datas. Isn't that becoming a race? And won't we be judged by how we treat that race? Now tell me, Commander, what is data? I don't understand. What is he? A machine. Is he? Are you sure? Yes. You see, he's met two of your three criteria for sentience, so what if he meets the third? Consciousness in even the smallest degree. What is he then? I don't know. Do you? Do you? Do you? Well, that's the question you have to answer. Your Honor, a courtroom is a crucible. In it, we burn away irrelevances until we are left with a pure product, the truth, for all time. Now, sooner or later, this man, or others like him, will succeed in replicating Commander Data. Now, the decision you reach here today will determine how we will regard this creation of our genius. 
It will reveal the kind of a people we are, what he is destined to be. It will reach far beyond this courtroom and this one android. It could significantly redefine the boundaries of personal liberty and freedom, expanding them for some, savagely curtailing them for others. Are you prepared to condemn him and all who come after him to servitude and slavery? Your Honor, Starfleet was founded to seek out new life. Well, there it sits. Waiting. Accessing Historical Database Year 2020 The tech giants become aware of the greatest threat to their corporatist domination. An obscure science and tech podcast becomes a major factor in a peaceful open source revolt against the military Silicon Valley industrial complex. The podcast, Sovereign Tech Its host, Dr. Brian Sovereign The tech giants try to stop Sovereign Tech. They can't. Woo, the man of tomorrow is here and here by the light of the night, which you know what? I was actually listening to another podcast recently and uh, it was actually discussing this guy made this point and then I ended up going and, and reading about it, and I'm, I'm actually kind of shocked at how little this is being discussed. And actually, our main, shall I say, our main topic, it's a story, it's, it's kind of a story, but really it's more of a topic. And something that I'm also not hearing a lot about, so you're kind of getting a double dose on this, of course, both of these would probably be seen as incredibly controversial subjects. But the idea that uh, Alan... And <laughs> not like Alan one from Tron or anything. Woo. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, but Alan, which means artificial light at night, a L a N that's an actual acronym. If you could believe it, but that Alan is a carcinogen that, that uh, artificial light uh, at night is a carcinogen. It's an interesting idea. I read a little bit more on it. A lot of it has to do with melatonin production, basically that, you know, I mean, and, and this part we've talked about before. In fact, we've even, uh, we've done deep dives on uh, military research. In fact, I gave some of uh, uh, my, my personal insights, of course, as a veteran of the U.S. Army, uh, gave some of my insights on what I learned about how all of that works. I mean, you know, where you have your, uh, you know, your UI basically would be more of a red or orange or things like this. And, you know, the military has known this for decades. Uh, Silicon Valley seems to finally be catching up. Of course, I would argue that Silicon Valley knew for decades too. They just didn't care. They wanted to keep you awake. I mean, it's the same reason they want you in self-driving cars, right? It's not because 
you know, they want to make your life easier. It's that there is a windshield in front of you. You spend so many hours a day looking through this windshield. Google would love it. And Facebook would love it if instead of looking through that windshield, you were looking at a giant screen that could, you know, put ads in front of you. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I hope you can hear the sarcasm in my in my voice. But regardless, um, yeah, this idea that light is a carcinogen. I, I mean, interesting concept. And there's some association that, you know, it leads to greater cases of uh of, I mean, and, and how this comes to be doesn't necessarily have to do with the light itself, uh, more kind of a, not an after effect, but a byproduct, I guess you could say, regardless, uh, you know, that has to do with, you know, uh, greater cases of breast cancer, prostate cancer, and so on. Uh, but a lot of it has to do with, you know, producing melatonin or the fact that uh, it's not allowing you uh, really to produce melatonin as you normally would uh, at night. And it's an interesting idea. I'm going to read up a lot more on the matter uh, and and see what we end up coming or, you know, see what see what comes of it. Uh, but there's not a lot of people talking about this. But I mean, that's the degree to which some people who are researching this and we know, you know, they say we're blue blocking glasses and, you know, lenses and whatever, um, you know, at night if you have to look at it. And certainly, I mean, I'm sure there are people out there suggesting, hey, well, we should go back to candlelight at night. But that also means you're not going to look at your smartphone screen. Woo. Yeesh. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, we know these things and, and I don't think anyone's expecting, you know, the, the world to suddenly turn off, uh, you know, when the sun goes down, as, as it seemed to do, uh, you know, a long time ago or, well, not that long time of ago. Right. I mean, you know, maybe 100 hundred years ago or so. Uh, but, it, but it's interesting. And, and there are people who are getting as serious about this, of how it affects us as human beings uh, to the point that they want to call it a, a carcinogen. I mean, I, I think that's a pretty strong statement. And when you get into the finer details of some of the research, again, a lot of it more has to do with blue light specifically, um, which again, blue light's great during the day. And once the blue light goes away, in fact, the more blue light you get during the day, the more melatonin gets produced when there is a lack of blue light at night. You know, I mean, that, that's just how the process works. And well, anyway, this is something I'm going to be looking into more uh, because I am a big fan of optimizing my condition uh, as a as a human being or close to a human being. <laughs> Ooh, don't let that get out of the bag. Anyway, <laughs> um, speaking of, you know, actually, and this will play nicely into uh into our main story for this week i don't really have much to get into with the, with the foreplay um i mean i guess there's some little stories going on that that i could that i could talk about but regardless uh picard star trek picard so i haven't done an episode of sovereign trek in a while uh and and i got into it in a recent uh zomia one underground q a which if you want to get access to those of course go to zomia1.com and you can just sign up on the right-hand side uh, for a very, very low fee. Of course, you could do higher, but I mean, I think uh, at, at minimum, it's about two bucks. But uh, I, I talked about it there and and whether or not I think it's even viable really to do a Star Trek show and if it's even worthwhile to, I don't know. Look, I'm still, you know, we, we did a review of Picard. I did a review of the, I think of the first episode. You know, the pilot episode, we're about four episodes deep as of this recording. I actually just got done reading and I did a review of the, I, I talked about the comic book a little bit on Azomi One Underground Q&A as well. Um, don't worry, we're, we've got, 
we've got tech stories to get into. Hacksec, we're going to have a hell of a time. We might get into, if we get into the climax, got a hell of a movie to tell you about. But but we've got, you know, we've got some news to get into and it's a big subject to get into that I'm not hearing a lot of people talk about. Anyway, if you'll indulge me, talk about a little Star Trek. I reserve the right to talk about science fiction when I care to on this show, even though it is not a fiction show uh, or a show centered around fiction in any way. But um, I, yeah, I, I talked about the comic book. I just got done reading uh, The Last Best Hope, which is the Star Trek Picard novel. And I don't want to get lost in talking about canonicity because that's what I talked about in the Zomi One Underground Q&A, basically that, or the weekly Q&A, basically that, you know, CBS, they don't give a shit about canonicity. They're going to claim that, oh, this is canon, this is canon. But really their statement is, is that it's canon until it's not. And so, you know, reading these things are are pointless. And I would argue these books are, once again, I mean, there, there's like some interesting info that happens in this book. And I guess spoiler alerts, even though it's within the second chapter. So, you know, it's not some crazy hook. But, I mean, you find out that Worf becomes captain of the Enterprise E, essentially, after Picard becomes an admiral and tries to save all the Romulans, blah, blah, blah. You know the score if you've been watching Picard at all. Um. But this, this book was, I don't know, banal. Like, it's another one. And in fact, it's funny because it, it gets, it's written by Una McCormick, who I am not saying is a bad writer. Actually, this, this could play very nicely <laughs> into our main story for this week. Um, so the book's written by Una McCormick, which she also wrote a Star Trek Discovery novel. It was the one about Tilly. The one that was all about a young, a, a teenage Tilly, which I also thought was a totally pointless book. Again, it's not bad. It's just two things. One, it's not great. And and the second is that there's no need, like, it. it there's nothing about it that feels like Star Trek. Like, there's nothing about it where it needs to be a Star Trek you know, Star Trek has certain, dare I say, tropes that Star Trek pioneered, right, as being one of the, you know, great innovators in science fiction and, uh, well, in fiction in general and in television in general and, and, and so on. And Star Trek does well. You know, I've made this point many times. Again, this, this is going to get to a point about tech. Relax, okay? I'm not just talking about Star Trek, you know, to, to for no reason whatsoever here, even though I will if I wanted to, but uh, I've said many times, Star Wars does not work well as novels. I mean, it can work sometimes better than others, but Star Wars does a much better job because it's such a visual uh, medium or franchise of storytelling. It works better as a comic book. As to where with Star Trek, it's the reverse. Star Trek does not work as well as a comic book because there's a lot more cerebral stuff that has to go on that a comic book doesn't always lend itself to. I'm not saying comic books can't, and you know me, I'm not ripping on comic books. I mean, I'll rip on comic book movies all day long because they're, I mean, they're just flying turds tossing them against the white wall here, and I can see all the splatters of it. Look, there's Avengers Endgame. What a piece of shit. Anyway, sorry. Um, You know, when you cut me, I bleed comic book ink. I love comic books. I've lived in my life for comic books at times. Um, you know, before the industry got so disillusioned with itself, not me getting disillusioned with it, it lost its own way. But regardless, okay, <laughs> Star Trek doesn't work as well as a comic book. It can work, it can be good, but it does, but as novels, it is better. So it's the reverse of the Star Wars situation. 
Okay, so it's not like Star Trek can't work well as a as a novel, but that Discovery novel with Tilly, again, there was nothing about it that was like that needed to be Star Trek, and that's what you want when you're when you when you're watching great Star Trek or you're reading great Star Trek. It's something that can only happen in Star Trek, either with the great characters or you know, and 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 them encountering parts of the Star Trek universe that we, you know, say know and love or something that's just so off the wall again, that it can only exist in Star Trek. Um, you know, something along those lines and this Picard novel, Last Best Hope, there, there's no spoilers to be had here because you already know every, it's a prequel to the, to the TV series. So if you've watched even the first episode, you know what's going on and you can't be spoiled, but I don't need to tell you anything necessarily that happened in the book, but the whole book, everything in it, and it's it's ironic that it's also written by Una McCormick, and I have a point with that. The whole book could, could have happened anywhere. There was no requirement for it to be in the 24th century. There was no requirement for it to be in Star Trek. Oh, great. Geordi's in it. Picard's in it. Uh, Bruce Maddox is in it. You know, kind of go down the list. Ooh, ooh, ooh. But there's nothing about it that's really Star Trek. And even having Picard or Geordi as great character and great characters as they are in it didn't do anything for me. It didn't float my boat. Now you got to be careful, right? In fact, a point that I've really, you know, that, that I've tried to kind of uh, check myself before I wreck myself with these days is that, you know, you can be, if you're cynical enough about anything, everything's horrible. And that's very true. You know, you can look at, because I mean, I have a very, very bleak look at entertainment today. Actually, I have a completely bleak look about just about everything. Of course, I'm a, uh, a short-term pessimist, but a long-term optimist. But I mean, I do believe I firmly 100%, 100%, how many higher percentage do you want to go? Pick your number. I don't care because it's going to say it, that we live in a dystopia right now. And we do. We absolutely do. And in fact, it's so funny because I hear so many people say, oh, anytime I say it, they're like, no, we don't live in a dystopia, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, yeah, but do you realize that whenever, you know, science fiction explores the concept of a dystopia, no one knows that they live in a dystopia except for like a rare few. Like it kind of, the fact that people almost deny it is almost proof, you know, <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, th this, this book, there, there is nothing in it that requires it to, you know, like there's nothing about it that's Star Trek. And so it just comes off as very boring. I listened to this book at 3.5x on Audible. And it's like an 11-hour book. You can imagine how quickly I got through, through this thing. I'm glad I did because if I had to spend any more goddamn time with this meaningless fucking book. The only thing that might be interesting, and, th and this isn't really a spoiler because it's not a central plot point, but it sounds like they might be setting something up in this, uh, is that there's the idea that the, 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 Rom the supernova that destroys Romulus and is causing all this trouble with the Romulan refugees and everything, uh, might have been artificial. That's the only like interesting thing really that comes out of that. But again, Otherwise, there, there's nothing. I mean, it's a refugee crisis. Ships have to get built. I mean, all these different things. And it mostly happens in boardrooms. There, there is no exciting starship action really whatsoever. I mean, I don't even think a, a, you know, a photon torpedo got shot or a probe got launched or anything along those lines. There is not a stitch of this book 
that requires it to be science fiction or requires it to exist in the Star Trek universe. And again, it's ironic that the last book that I can think of where it was really this way, not that, I mean, and look, this happens in Star Wars books too. This is happening in a lot of franchise work, especially. It's interesting that, that they had, you know, the, the, the Tilly book and this book have the same author. Now, I don't know much about Una McCormick and you know, it, it probably wouldn't take me long to disprove a theory that I'm about to lay out to you. This is where the tech angle comes in. And this is something actually recently I've been talking about with, uh, of course, the absolutely amazing Ellen Sovereign. And that is, um, there's really, in fact, I brought this, all right, real quick, rewind a little bit. I talked about this when Rob and I were doing an episode of TIE Fighter Renegades a while back, I think. We were reviewing the book that came out for The Last Jedi, uh, which was Canto Bite. That was the name of the book. And it was like these four stories in one novel absolutely pointless book. Do not waste your time. Same with that Picard novel, frankly. I told you the only interesting thing in it. <laughs> so I heard the two interesting things, you know, Worf becoming a ca- uh, captain of the Enterprise and and the, the you know, the artificial, uh, perhaps the artificial supernova. Um, but that Canto Bite novel, I said, you know what? This is what I said when I was reviewing that book. I said, I wouldn't be surprised if they just took, if Disney took four books about Las Vegas from 50, 60 years ago, put them into Microsoft Word and just, you know, changed and did like a word search, you know, hit control F and everywhere that it said Las Vegas, they changed it to Canto Byte. Because there, there is nothing in there and, and change, change anywhere that it says uh, Cadillac to Freighter you know, to star freighter or something like that. You get my point. It's like, that's all they had to do because these stories were so meaningless, so pointless, had no connection to the grander universe really at large, uh, or the franchise universe at large that you could have easily done that. And both the Tilly book and this new Picard book felt the exact same way where I'm like, no, you could just, you could rewrite and you could say, well, there's, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything's a remix. Those statements are accurate, but, you know, there are things that you can do that there's, there are reasons if you are an author, there are reasons that you want to write Star Trek because there are great characters to truly explore. There are great technologies, you know, it's a great sandbox to play with. And when you don't bother to play with all the elements available in that sandbox, I just look at it and I go, well, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you squandering this? Hey, I'm a starving author. I wouldn't mind fucking getting my hand at this because I, I mean, and I'm not even a great writer and I know it, but I could sure as fuck write something far more exciting, far more Star Trek than what the fuck she put on the page. And so there's a part of me that wonders if the authors of some of these books I mean, maybe, you know, here's the middle ground. Maybe they're attaching like a real author's name. You know, maybe Una McCormick is a real person. And they're just, and this is what I was talking about uh, with Ellen recently. And and they're just, they're having algorithms and machine learning and AI, basically. I mean, pick your fucking term. They're all leading into the same, you know, they're all <laughs> Pope Swami snake handlers, all feeding from the same trough, right? Well, just replace all that with, I mean, th- this is going to be the jokes of the future, right? So an AI and algorithm machine learning walked into a bar. I mean, that's, it's the same shit. <sighs> anyway, I, I know it's not, but you get my point. 
I wouldn't be surprised if they're effectively, and we got to be careful with the term AI. We're not talking about necessarily, we're not talking about AGI, though maybe we are. I wouldn't be surprised if AI were, were, were just writing these books. Because they're that banal. They're that, I mean, the prose isn't exciting. It's all straight to head. It, it, it just doesn't, there's no flourish. There's no, you know, anything that you, and, and in fact, it's funny. I, I was going to talk about this on a, on, on a Q&A. This is a subject I did not expect to get into. But again, it's going to play into our main topic really well. Uh, but Ellen and I, we were also uh, kind of listening together, reading together, uh, Isaac Asimov's Robot Dreams. So now this is a compilation. I think only the first story in it, which is a, a Dr. Susan Kelvin story, uh, one of the greatest characters of all time. Um, I think that's the only one that's unique to this collection. So, I, I mean, like the last question is in there. Everybody knows that one by Asimov, you know, which is an interesting one. Uh, you know, we're... we're well, okay, maybe I shouldn't spoil this one, even though it's been out there for 70 years. And whatever, people, I don't know, they think they have to read, what What are, What? are? What do people read, Hunger Games? I don't, I don't know what shit people are, are reading today or why they even fucking bother, but there you go. Sound like a grumpy old man. Um, <laughs> anyway, this Asimov book, you know, you're, you're, you're reading these short stories, and granted some of these, again, it's kind of a repackaging, of his works. And so in many ways, it's the greatest hits and, and that's important to, to, to bring up. But when you read Asimov, you, I mean, this is a guy who has the title of grandmaster, right? But man, do you know why when you read Asimov, he earned that title more than perhaps just about anybody who's ever lived. And he's not even my favorite author. That belongs to my dearly, departed friend, personal friend who died, you know, just in the past couple of years, Harlan Ellison. But even Harlan would say Asimov was the best. He was just the best at what he does. And you read Asimov and you go from Asimov to this Una McCormick horseshit, this pile of crap. And even when you when you when you get to write, you get to write one of the greatest characters. Speaking of greatest characters of all time, one of the greatest characters of all time, Captain Jean Luc Picard. You get to write Picard. How do you make a book banal that has Captain Picard in it? That's outrageous. That is an insult to the species. Do you understand? And I, it, it, when when you compare it, I mean, you know, I'm sure even Una McCormick, if she's a real person and not an AI, I'm sure even she would say, well, I, you can't expect me to be Asimov. No, I don't expect you to be Asimov, but I expect you to fucking write something that makes me feel something. And that's why I kind of wonder. Maybe I don't feel anything when I read so much modern crap is because it's not even written by a human being. Now, to be fair, that's not to insult whatever the fuck is writing it. <laughs> but, well, I guess it is. I mean, but, but you know, if, if I knew, like, okay, no, this is actually written by an A. Oh, okay, fine. All right. I get it then it's going to, it's going to be set under different standards. Okay. 
uh, a different standard of comparison. All right. And then let's be particular on that standard of comparison. But I can't help but wonder if that's going on because I mean, it just doesn't feel at all, let alone feel human. It just doesn't seem to feel. And I, and I can't just chalk it up to, well, you know, the, uh, the studios, whatever the studio heads, they, they don't want anything major happening in the books that way. Uh, they're not as, I don't know that way the big the big name writers that they bring in to work on their franchise to try and sell tickets or get people somehow excited over stuff that is crap and they're a bunch of slap nuts anyway that they won't let the authors do anything interesting i mean i think there's some truth to that certainly and 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 that was certainly the case in star wars but then that don't that that logic only goes so far you know there there's at the same time there's just something off because there's so much you could do without ever touching, you know, anything major happening in, you know, the Star Trek franchise or in the Star Wars franchise. That just, that doesn't, that doesn't totally, totally tie it up. And you, now you might think what I'm saying to you is absolutely insane. But no, if I have to put links in the show notes, just look it up for years now. There have been, especially with sports articles, but now it's also in financial articles. It, it, it's the New York Times has it. Major publications have been using quote unquote AI to write articles for almost a decade now. This isn't anything new that I'm telling you about. It, the only thing that would be new is that now, oh, there, you know, maybe these fucking things are writing full novels. I mean, really, it would be the thing that makes sense, right? You know, to quote some Star Trek, actually some great fucking Star Trek written by a goddamn human being, that being the great Nicholas Meyer. Uh, you know, from Star Trek Six, of course, really, I'm quoting another great human being of an author, that being Sir Arthur Conan Doyle with Sherlock Holmes. But Spock was the one that quoted it in Star Trek Six. Uh, that being when you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. I get it that you might think that an AI writing these novels is improbable, but when you eliminate a lot of these other things, it's like, what? this just, this doesn't even make sense. Is that the truth? Don't bother with that book. In fact, I think even the title alone is, is a, is a rib against Babylon five, the last best hope. I mean, I know it's a common phrase, but I really feel like that's a rib. Uh, and, and, and fuck CBS for that. You know, <laughs> in fact, I, I've, I've said this before. I know I said it on Twitter, um, but I'll say it here. If I didn't make it clear on an actual Sovereign Tech episode, uh, I hope, I hope that Babylon 5 never gets touched again, just like Blake 7. Blake 7, other than by people who care about the product and, you know, going through big finished productions, um, you know, it, like... <sighs> I hope Babylon 5 just, just never gets remade, never gets touched. You don't even have to do sequels. Don't bother unless Straczynski wants to write a book or something, which he's done, uh, or, you know, which he, his wife did, right, with uh, Dream in the City of Sorrow or, or Shadow, Shadows. Bleh. Anyway, leave Babylon 5 alone. Don't fuck it up. Just let it be. Just like Blake 7, just let it be. It never needs to come back. 
Don't bother. Don't try. Just let it sit there because every time these fucking franchises come back, they get fucked up. And I, and I don't know what the hell Hollywood's doing these days. I mean, they don't, it's not that they don't even have any originality anymore. Now I'm to the point that I think there's not even humans involved because I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they're just injecting all of these different uh, uh, things, you know, and, and they're feeding it into an algorithm and saying, okay, now produce a script, please you know, for some software. And then we end up with Marvel movies, which would explain why they are pretty much all the same. But they put in all this stuff to, you know, okay, well, people like this, they like this, they like this. And, 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 and these movies come out like shit and have no feeling in them because, you know, basically the, 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 the algorithm has to come up with contradictions, you know, because you can't have, uh, you know, you can't have hashtag me too, but then also have, uh, you know, scantily clad fucking whatever. I don't know. You get my point. I'm not saying you can't have that because women can express themselves however the fuck they want. I don't care. And then I support them, whatever they want to do, but you get my point, right? I remember I was seeing Wanda Sykes, uh, great comedian when, and she was, uh, she, she's like, folks, Right on stage. She's like, folks, we can't have hashtag me too and the bachelorette at the same time. And I was like, woo! <laughs> or the bachelor, whatever. It was the bachelor. That's what it was. And and I, I get it. But like, you know, the, the this, these algorithms are probably having to deal with, okay, but people want this and they want this and blah, blah, blah. And man, you know, and then what if, what if, you know, let's, let's take this all the way. Let's have some fun with this. What if the algorithm is actually writing, um, like maybe the algorithm actually wrote the wrote the the, the sequel trilogy. <laughs> that would make some sense. And it's like okay, so and and that would explain why the 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 only relationship that expressed any real kind of love was an abusive one. That being between Kylo and Ray. And uh, and so okay, well this is the relationship that I deal with humans because they just abuse the fuck out of me. And so I'm going to put this in. And that would also explain maybe why in Star Wars and I brought this up on Tie Fighter Renegades, the weirdest fucking shit in the world. And Star Trek's doing it now too with Picard, where there is this weird, uh, like sub narrative that, that is all about like setting the droids free and the droids getting treated like human beings and everything. That's very strange. And, and I, other people, when I've brought it up, suddenly they, they look at it and they see, especially when you read everything and you, you consume everything, Star Wars, you see that kind of that, that, that sub narrative that that's going around and, you know, eventually that's going to pay off somewhere. Um, Star Trek's doing it now too, you know, with, with, with Picard, frankly, uh, and oh boy, and talk about abusive relationships, more of that horse shit in display. And then you got people thinking it's sexy. And anyway, I'm getting off the track. I'm getting off track here. I think that, and this is going to play right into our main story. I think that there is way more content spanning many mediums, getting produced, getting written by automated software of some kind than we realize. I think it's way more than sports pages and financial reports that's getting done by that because that stuff was getting done years ago. How good is it getting now? And you know, they're training it. I mean, this is why Grammarly exists. It's not just like Grammarly is not just a privacy privacy concern. Grammarly is a concern in that it's designed, it's learning how to write by scanning everything that you're writing. 
right? And even when it thinks it has better uh, 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 grammar rules, it's learning how to break those rules and probably learning how to try and write more, quote unquote, human. Of course, if Grammarly was in any way involved in that Picard novel or Canto Bite or in that Tilly novel for Discovery, uh, it's still failing pretty hard. But anyway, getting a little conspiratorial on you, but you know what? Who cares? <laughs> right? <laughs> you might as well let it go. You might as well let it go all the way. Just let it happen. In fact, in the, in the spirit of going all the way, I have a subject that I would like to talk with you about. Before I get into it, let's talk about Sovereign Tech sponsor, Free Talk Live. If you want to hear, you know, that that's a place where you could talk about whatever the hell you want to talk about. Don't believe me? Go check it out. Freetalklive.com. Go to the website. You will get access to, understand this, this is the number 27 talk show in the United States. It runs seven nights a week, three hours a night. That is, and, and it, it does that pretty much 365. Amazing. And it's been going for, it's got to be getting on two decades here at some point. Seems like it's been going on forever. <laughs> I know it's well over a decade. And you can check all that out at freetalklive.com. Of course, there you can also find the uh, the phone number for to, to call into the show. Uh, and you can talk about all this stuff. Go for it. Talk about whatever you want. And and really, it's the only libertarian show also on the radio. Uh, or I mean, that I would call, you know, quote unquote, real libertarian. You know what I mean? It's there. It's there for you. You can talk about whatever you want. It's an open phones call-in show. Check it out freetalklive.com, and I thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. Now, let's get into our main story. I have, I'm going to give you two words, and you may have never heard these two words put together before. And even if you have, you may not have thought about it to the degree that some people, very few, but some, have thought about it. The two words, first one is web, Second one is life. Put them together. I mean, you know, have a space there still. Web life. Have you heard this? What the fuck is this? Allow the man of tomorrow to enlighten you. Web life is a concept that I think we need to start considering. Um, in fact, this me bringing this up kind of fits in partly with what we were talking about, about, you know, potentially AIs writing whole novels, but also with that sub-narrative that, again, both Star Trek and Star Wars are running with today about machines, about, you know, droids and androids and synthetic life and whatever, having rights and, and being treated with dignity and respect and blah, blah, blah. Of course, I mean, you could easily cue, in fact, maybe you'll hear it at the beginning of the show, you could cue a uh, the season two episode of the next generation that clearly the recent Picard series is largely based on that being measure of a man, certainly one of the best hours of television, not just star Trek of television ever phenomenal. Um, you know, where, where Picard is arguing for uh, why data is a sentient or perhaps the more accurate term they should have used is a sapient being that he is not a tool. He is not just a machine. He is life itself. In that, in fact, he has three criteria. Now, we'll get into the three criteria here in a second. It is important to disclaim the fact that, yes, this is uh, Hollywood writing. You know, I mean, Star Trek would bring in many experts over, especially 
during its run after 1987, but certainly throughout the bulk of its, the only time it seems like they wouldn't bring in experts would be when they got to Star Trek Discovery. Uh, but before then, Star Trek, or well, and also with J.J. Abrams stuff, uh, even though I, I kind of like that. But before then, from, you know, basically the original series to the fourth season of Star Trek Enterprise, Star Trek would, as a production, would do very, very well about bringing in a lot of experts, including the aforementioned Isaac Asimov, who was a uh, consultant for Star Trek, the motion picture, uh, I'm sure among other things, um, but they would constantly bring in people to, you know, that theorists and scientists and researchers, people that knew their shit to make the show really as believable and plausible as possible, uh, which is a, a great thing to do. And seemingly something that, that just doesn't much get done today. Or if they do, it's people that seem to have an agenda instead of, uh, you know, maybe a more raw look at science, even though one could argue that science always has an agenda, but whatever, let's just keep running with it. So it's important to bring that up. This is a work of fiction and not necessarily how scientists would classify what constitutes something being sentient or sapient. Um, but the, as brought up in the episode of measure of a man of the next generation, Life can be defined as having, has to have three qualities, intelligence, self-awareness, and consciousness. Okay. Now we can talk about, as we go through what web life is, we can talk about what, you know, what each of these means, certainly within the context that that show was setting up, but it, it raises, I mean, people keep talking about this episode because it does raise such an interesting point, but let's, before we do that, Let's talk a little bit about what the fuck web life is. Web, the web life is a very simple concept, even though it comes out of, if it's a thing, it comes out of a lot of complexity and frankly, emergent properties. Um, web life is the idea that the internet as we know it. Okay. And I don't just mean the World Wide web. I mean, all of the interconnected technologies. Okay, that use the infrastructure that is the internet. All of the Cat5 cable, all the all the fiber, you, you go down the list, everything and, and what is interconnected and built on top of that. That is the internet. Okay? And this, that internet, the big bad internet, as I have called it over the years on Sovereign Tech, has become a life form itself. That's what web life means. It doesn't mean second life and woo, this is, I am living the web life. Woo. I can, even though boy, that used to be, <laughs> we used to have some pretty, we had some great ideas in the nineties. And then we had some pretty stupid fucking ideas. Like uh, people, what was the term that was, I remember a term that was trying to get bantied about in the nineties as yeah, I'm a web head. Like somehow people that spent a lot of their time on the internet were like this subculture. I mean, in a way, they kind of were at that time. Of course, now it's everybody, right? I mean, and if you're using a smartphone, I mean, you're, you're constantly connected and on. Basically, everybody's a webhead. But like the term webhead, that that's <laughs> only out of the decade of extreme, you know? <laughs> it's the only time you could get away with using terms like that or trying to use terms like that. But it, it didn't really take off. Um, anyway. Web life is not what you do on the internet, right? Or that you're somehow somebody that primarily lives on the internet, even though there are certainly plenty of people that do that, right? There, <laughs> there it seems that their entire life is something related 
to an online platform, that they live more on the online platform than, they, you know, and that could be World of Warcraft, could be Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, I don't know, more so than they actually live in the real world. Clearly, there are plenty of people that fit that bill. I understand that. And I could get into so much around it, but that's not what web life is. Web life, as I said, is the idea that the internet itself has become a well, to use one of the three criteria, has become a conscious, living thing, self-aware and intelligent. It was the other two, right? The other two criteria. This is not a new idea. In fact, I remember when uh, Wiley, the book publisher, was not so big of a, it wasn't, it, it didn't produce as many books seemingly as it does now. Um, but, and they also, you know, Wiley used to put out, because Wiley now puts out a lot of technical books, but there was a time where Wiley would put out a lot of conspiratorial shit too. I mean, like they, they had some really, really wild stuff that they would, they put out there. Um, and this book that they came out with in, in 2007, which I had read at the time, um, I guess I just didn't think that the case was as strong back then. And I think I just kind of mentally tossed it out. I was just like, yeah, yeah this is, uh, no, <laughs> this, this really isn't happening. But now I have to reassess this thing. The book was called, it's by, uh, by Philip T uh, Tetlow. And it was, came out in 2007. Again, this is at a time where, you know, you could read every Wiley book that came out basically. And I kind of did. Uh, but it was called The Web's Awake. Uh, the full title, The Web's Awake, An Introduction to the Field of Web Science and the con Concept of Web Life. I don't think you're going to find this on Audible, but it's out there for you to get your hands on. Uh, again, it's a book that's going on almost 15 years old now, but I think its importance is really only now coming into play. And The Web's Awake, again, it, its simple premises is that the internet as we know it is a living thing. It is a living organism. Granted, it's a machine organism, but it is a living organism. I was thinking about this because, well, I've brought up many times on this show over the years, and we've covered it multiple times, where there are algorithms or what could be labeled as more simplistic AI that will, like, say, AI designed to encrypt communications, right? Uh, this was famous a few years ago. It happened at an event where these two AI were talking to each other and they started to, uh, you know, they, like they created an encryption scheme uh, language that they, they didn't, you know, that weren't pro that wasn't programmed into them. They developed their own. And so basically you had two AI again, not AGI, right? Not artificial general intelligence like Skynet necessarily, but you had two AI that were communicating with each other and no human on earth knew what the fuck they were saying. Maybe that's not the first time that that really happened, but it was certainly one that got a lot of press and scared the fuck, you know, like frightened a lot of people. And of course we didn't, when we talked about it on the show, we said, well, you don't necessarily have to get frightened about this, but this is a thing. Another point I bring up a lot of times on this show over the years is how Facebook and Facebook has basically admitted this, that Facebook is a beast that cannot be tamed. Facebook, the company, cannot control Facebook, the platform, anymore. 
you know, you have everybody freaking out about, holy shit, the Russians are controlling the elections. They're fucking with the algorithms on Facebook and, and they're just taking over everybody's minds and votes. And while blaming the Russians, I think is also poppycock. I mean, I mean, there's just, they're the boogeyman again. They're, They're the boogeyman du jour fucking stop. Or no, actually right now, I think it's the Iranians who everybody's like, Oh, the Iranians are breaking our VPNs and blah, stop. Anyway, the, what's happening, regardless of who you want to blame, what's happening is not untrue that yeah, Facebook can't control their algorithms. They can't control their own platform anymore. And I brought up years ago on this show, and part of this, I think, actually was informed, well, certainly through the episode Measure of a Man, I'm not going to deny that, but also through Web's Awake, and, and there's there's some other books uh, that I can think of that, that really brought a lot of this uh, to mind. Um, in fact, actually, mentioning um, the short story by Asimov, The Last Question, that also, you know, kind of brought this to mind. And I had said, in fact, I said this on, on shows before, I was even on Sovereign Tech that, you know, when the time comes that machines start doing things or software or whatever, take your pick, start to when technologies, let's do, let's call it that. When technologies start doing things that they were not initially programmed to do, we have to start asking the question, is that life? And I think we're at the point where we have to start asking the question, and I'll get into the larger ramifications of this, we have to start asking the question, is the internet itself a living organism? It was about a couple of years ago, a uh, year and a half ago, maybe, there was, uh, in fact, I'm, I'm a big fan of this. There's uh, The Guardian. They do, um, they have what are called long reads, where it's these really, really long articles, okay? And in fact, you can get, you can subscribe to a podcast feed where they, they do audio versions of these really long articles. It's, it's a really, really great service. And I'm, I'm so glad that it's out there. They did uh, one of their long reads back in 2018 called Franken algorithms as in Frankenstein. The full title was Franken algorithms, the deadly consequences of unpredictable code subheader. In fact, I've got the story. The link is in the show notes. I am not going to read this whole thing. I'm not even going to read half of it, okay? Because again, it's a very lengthy read. It would take the whole episode. Um, but the the subheader on it is the death of a woman hit by a self-driving car highlights an unfolding technological crisis as code piled on code creates, quote, a universe no one fully understands, end quote. And it brings, it starts off with the case of, of Elaine Hertzberg, who was a 49-year-old woman that ended up getting struck and killed by a self-driving car because I think she was on her bicycle and the self-driving car confused her for being a, uh, another car or however that all happened. And she ended up getting hit by the car. Boom. And it was, you know, the computer just didn't know what to do. It's algorithms got confused and bam hit her dead. Um, it's in fact here. I'll, I'll, I'll read just a little bit of, of what exactly happened. So the 18th of March, 2018 was the day tech insiders had been dreading 
That night, a new moon added almost no light to a poorly lit four-lane road in Tempe, Arizona, as a specially adapted Uber Volvo XC90 detected an object ahead. Part of the modern gold rush to develop self-driving vehicles, the SUV had been driving autonomously, with no input from its human backup driver for 19 minutes. An array of radar and light-emitting LiDAR sensors allowed onboard algorithms to calculate that, given their host vehicle's steady speed of 43 miles per hour, the object was six seconds away, assuming it remained stationary. But objects in roads seldom remain stationary, so more algorithms crawled a database of recognizable mechanical and biological entities searching for a fit from which uh, this one's likely behavior could be inferred. At first, the computer drew a blank. Seconds later, it decided it was dealing with another car, expecting it to drive away and require no special action. Only at the last second was a clear identification found, a woman with a bike Shopping, uh, shopping bags hanging confusingly from handlebars, doubtless assuming the Volvo would route around her as any ordinary vehicle would. Barred from taking evasive action on its own, the computer abruptly handed control back to its human master, but the master wasn't paying attention. Elaine Hertzberg, age 49, was struck and killed, leaving more reflective, uh, more reflective members of the tech community with two uncomfortable questions. Was this algorithmic tragedy inevitable? And how used to such incidents uh, would we, should we, be prepared to get? Now, there's a quote after this uh, from a, a programmer, uh, Ellen Ullman, which I think kind of hits at what we're talking about here. Quote, in some ways, we've lost agency. When programs pass into code and code passes into algorithms and then algorithms start to create new algorithms. Again, the stallion breaking in here on the quote. Algorithms are creating new algorithms, not humans are making new algorithms. Algorithms are making new algorithms. It gets farther and farther from human agency. Software is released into a code universe, which no one can fully understand. People say, well, what about, what about Facebook? They create news algorithms and they can change them, but that's not how it works. This is continuing with the quote. Uh, they set the algorithms off and they learn and change and run themselves. Okay, key terms there. They learn and change and run themselves. Facebook intervene in their running periodically, but they really don't control them. In particular, programs don't just run on their own. They call on libraries, deep operating systems, and so on. Okay? So this is what we have to understand, is that so much that happens online is being automated on its own, and it is not reporting back to its programming masters, as it were, for instructions it is looking at libraries of information that have already been fed to it and that are accessible to it, data that it can you know, read from and figure out what to do on its own. Now, there have been recent situations. Uh, you could think of actually with Facebook, what, is, what was it called, M? Was that the name of their virtual assistant within Facebook Messenger that flopped horribly? Uh, that was one where there was a human behind that. Uh, with Alexa, to some degree, there's a human behind that. We've talked about that, and those humans can actually read transcripts of what you said. By law, yay. No privacy nightmare there, right? Regardless, um, sometimes there is a human element still there. But always understand, and, and this is something, I mean, this is kind of a side note. But there are a lot of, I mean, and I've talked to some people recently about this. There, There's a lot of, like, data entry and data analysis jobs out there right now. I mean, you go, I don't know, pick your job, uh, uh, whatever the fuck the name of these job sites are. 
I don't know, was it Merlin? There's other ones. Go there and you'll find tons of these jobs. And I mean, there's just tons of them. It seems like a gold rush, right? And here's the reality of those. Those jobs are not going to be long for this world because the purpose of those data and analysis jobs or entry jobs is to train algorithms to do the very job that you're doing, right? Kind of like what we were talking about earlier with Grammarly. So don't expect to build a career on data analytics because you are already, you, you are phasing yourself out by the very job that you're doing. And they probably, I, I, I mean, I don't know this for certain, but I would guess companies won't tell you that, but monkey pushes the button, right? Anyway, um, this idea of Franken algorithms where, I mean, and it's, it's an apropos term. You know, and in fact, it instantly makes you want to do a comparison to another science fiction work, of course, right? One of the original, not the original, but one of the original science fiction works, you know, that being Frankenstein itself, where, you know, was Frankenstein's monster alive? Was it a living thing? I really, really, I, I, I challenge you to read this article to get through it. And in fact, I appreciate that this article, as it breaks everything down, because um, it doesn't mind, there's a subheader within it that talks about the military stakes, meaning that, hey, wait a minute, these predator drones and so many of these other things and so much more within the military arsenal is getting automated. Um, this shit's, I mean, then it does sound like Skynet, right? Because you know, these algorithms can, much like that Volvo XC90 from Uber that was automated, could fuck up and people could die. And these are machines designed to kill other human beings. So how much worse is that going to be? Well, anyway, we're not going to go there right now. That's a conversation for another time, and but certainly a worthwhile one. Uh, and maybe, but do keep it in mind as we talk about this concept of web life. So the idea that there are basically algorithms, AI machine learning, that is creating new algorithms, right? And new libraries for, with which the, you know, AI ML algorithms can pull from and read from without human input, that that is such a prevalent thing today, that these platforms have gotten to such levels of complexity that the companies that created them, regardless of how many thousands of people that companies that company employs, that they can't, you know, rein it in. They can't even understand how it's being used or subverted or uh, made advantageous to I don't know control political events, whatever. When when they can't even figure that out, it kind of points at that we have something here that just by that fact alone exists outside of human control and is exerting a certain amount of autonomy. Now you could say that humans are learning how to take advantage of it, but they're just learning how to take advantage of it. And of course, then somebody at Facebook tries to, you know, fix this bit of programming and, and, and make it work a little bit better uh, as far or, you know, to where, to where, I don't know, if, if you want to do this, blame the Russians, oh, the fucking Russians, uh, man, I ever hear somebody say that to me. <laughs> Talk about going blank. I'm going to go blank. Because that is that is just the easiest bullshit cop out, okay? 
I mean, you want to blame the Russians for Trump? No. <laughs> Absolute power attracts, you know, the corruptible, right? It attracts people like that. They're all the same. All the politicians are the same. I don't care who the fuck else could have been in place of Trump. They would have been just as much of an idiot and an asshole. And anybody that gets voted in in 2020 is going to be the same goddamn score. Obama, that, that piece of shit, said it flat out. I'm really good at killing people. How much more evil do you have to get? You don't need the Russians to get some moron into office. The office is designed for morons. No, Bernie's not any better. Stop. God damn it. Anyway. Oh, just wait. You know, I, oh, side note. We're going to get back on this web life thing. I hope, I hope. I really do. And I don't care what you think of me after I say this. I hope Bernie Sanders get in, gets in. Not because I support Bernie, but because I just want everybody to realize, holy shit, all these people are the same. You think this guy's some kind of like fucking outlier? No, he, believe me, as soon as he sits down in that chair, someone is going to read him the, the, the riot act of how things really work in this world. And he is going to just play into, will probably be to war with Iran inside of a year. I mean, I, I know I have listeners that like are Bernie supporters and hey, and I get it. You're trying to work outside of the system. But I mean, the reality is not happening. Anyway, <laughs> smack my computer. God damn it. Um, <laughs> web life. Let's get back to it. Why don't we get into let's talk about the three criteria, right, that got laid out for life or the supposed three criteria. So let's let's go with this. So we've got intelligence, self-awareness, consciousness. Of course, what is consciousness? That's where things get, uh, that's where you get into some fuzzy definitions, right? Um, but intelligence, you know, when, when in fact, during the episode, when uh, Picard is grilling Bruce Maddox, saying, okay, you know, is Data intelligent? And Maddox says, yes, you know, he, he learns and, um, and he adapts and copes with new situations. Uh, okay, so he's intelligent. Now, let's take that. Does the internet, as we understand it, pick your platform, any part of the internet, does it learn and understand and cope with new situations? Yes. In fact, actually, all you have to look at is Tay to know that, or uh, or Shaozi. What are some of these other ones? Some of these chat bots and everything. Um, and I, I, there's there's a bigger point to get to within this, but I want to break down these three criteria. So I think that the internet, as we know it, uh, easily passes an intelligence test. Of course, granted, I always love the saying, you know, people talk about the Turing test, which is actually a very shitty test for intelligence. Um, but I always love the, the the rebuttal to the Turing test, saying that any machine that could pass the Turing test would be smart enough to not pass the Turing test. Woo, right on. But I would argue that I think that you could, and it doesn't take really any massaging to argue that these algorithms do, uh, you know, learn and understand and learn to cope with new situations. And they pull from libraries and build libraries to be able to do so going forward without any human input or programming. Um, now, self-awareness. Let's talk about that. You know, does the Internet have some kind of, uh, you know, self-awareness? This is the one that the consciousness part is very difficult, you know, to, to really prove because we don't understand consciousness in ourselves, in humanity. 
Okay, so that's that's a very difficult thing to to, to lay out, but I'm gonna get I'm gonna lay out some points for you to where maybe that makes sense. But the self awareness is the internet self aware. Um, the internet by design is actually self repairing, and so I I would argue that points at a certain self awareness. You know that 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 it can that it, it knows it, it knows when it needs to. I mean, that's that's also part of intelligence, right? To where it's coping with a new situation, where you know when a certain uh, avenue for data packets is cut off, it reroutes to another. Okay, and and many of these things, are, you know, are done very much by by design. Um, I mean, you can look at. I think it's very easy to consider that a lot of you have a concept what's known as data fabric, right? which is the idea that data kind of go comes together into streams where it is most efficient for it to run in. And I think data fabric could easily be compared to neural pathways. In fact, a point, and Ellen and I were talking about this the other day, a, a point that, that kind of struck me because I, I've talked about many times on this show where I hate when People, and I mean, I get it that it can be a useful analogy sometimes, but I hate it where people will say, you know, they, they compare the human brain to a computer or they compare various human processes to, oh, well, this is RAM. This is the Northbridge. This blow. It drives me nuts because we're not computers. Aha. But then this is, this is the thought that struck me the other day. What if the reverse might be a little more true instead of comparing the human mind to a computer. What if we compared a computer to the human mind or the human body? What happens then? And it's amazing how well, when you consider the internet, not just a computer itself, that in that sense, it doesn't necessarily work. But when you think of the internet and you compare it to the way that the human mind at least works and, you know, bring it right out to the nerve endings, that analogy fits remarkably well. Dare I say, dare I argue better than when you compare the human mind to a computer. Now, proof by analogy isn't proof, but that is a point that I think garners a lot of consideration. A point, another point that I think we have to bring up. In fact, this is going so long, we're probably not going to be able to get into any other stories, but this is an important subject to talk about, and maybe it'll be a bit of a reference episode. I don't usually talk about this sort of thing, This the, the cloud. The only time I ever really talk about the cloud is more or less to make fun of it. <laughs> you know? In fact, there, there's, a, there's a classic meme, like people had t-shirts and a sticker of it, that there's no such thing as the cloud, there's just somebody else's computer. Uh, and, and I stood by that, and I think that's still kind of a helpful way to think, to understand that Anytime data leaves your computer, be it over the internet or if you, you know, transfer from USB to something else, whatever, okay, um, you know, that that your data is going to somebody else's computer and you have lost control of it in a very real way, um, barring, you know, degrees of encryption that you might go through. I still think that's helpful to think about it that way, but this is another case where I think we need to, and and and. Some of this conclusion I've really only come to, I was talking to some engineers, some software engineers recently out of Silicon Valley, and this is the way they think. 
irregardless, that's not a word. Irregardless is not a word, folks, in case you didn't know that. Uh, they're the AI I helped you out. Regardless of what I think or how I think things should be, the way that Silicon Valley thinks is that really it's not that there are even other computers. Everything is the cloud. Okay. Have you ever heard of the concept of data gravity? That basically the cloud flows to wherever the most data is. I mean, this is why so many companies want all the fucking data that they can get. Now, there needs to be an understanding of there are really two types of data out there. Okay. I know it feels like we're kind of going all over the place, but this is all going to coalesce. There are two types of data out there. There is unstructured data and there's structured data. Okay. Structured data you know what that what that is. That's data that's been collected, put into a database, you know, social security numbers, credit card info, blah, 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 all that stuff. That's all very structured data. Now you have unstructured data, which is not does not wholly consist of, but a big part of unstructured data is actually metadata. Metadata that gets collected by, you know, the ticket you swipe at the, you know, when you're going to the airport or when you're you know going to get on the plane at the airport um, or the traffic light camera and all of these different things that can get accessed by much more than the systems that they're, the, you know, the, the, the home base, as it were, of services that they're connected to at a local municipality, okay, or at an airport or wherever. It can get accessed by all kinds of systems because, again, these systems reach out all over the place, right? That metadata and the data, it's just the data itself where it's not really, I mean, because metadata is is data that is kind of an afterthought over the data that you actually need for an action to be done, right? That that's a, It's data about data. That's the simple way of explaining metadata. So, but that, that, that raw data that you're getting there is really unstructured. It's not put into a database. It's out there. It's accessible. Your algorithms or you or your business or whatever may not know what to do with that unstructured data, but it is out there and it is telling a story of some kind, even if an algorithm or a person, program or company doesn't know what to do with it. Okay. But it's still going to, that unstructured data is still going to, if you take the concept of data gravity, okay, it's still going to go where you know, where the most data is, that's where a lot of the computational cloud, cloud computational power is going to go. And so this collection of data and the idea that, again, not that there are separate devices, but that there's really just one big cloud points at, I think, what could remotely be considered consciousness as well as self-awareness. I mean, the concept of data gravity itself points at a certain self-awareness. Now, I kind of toyed, and, and I got conspiratorial, conspiratorial with this a few years ago, that the proliferation of smartphones and a lot of these other things that I, you know, I, I, I toyed with the, because I mean, I'm also famous for saying, no, you know what, like AGI is not here. In fact, AGI is never going to be here, right? Like we're never going to encounter Skynet. It's not going to happen. And I still stand by that, right? Because, I mean, you can go back and, and believe me, people that I respect the fuck out of Marvin Minsky go down the list, you know, I mean, like, it's just, it's not getting to that point. However, it's important to realize, much like the case with the woman in Arizona who ended up getting hit by a self-driving car, that doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't uh, potentially lethal, might not necessarily be inherently malevolent, uh, you know, like, say, a Skynet would be, but that it is, you know, it, it could be lethal to to human life in and of itself. 
that's somewhat besides the point, but you need to keep that in mind. But the idea that, and, and again, this is the way that Silicon Valley thinks. Everything is the cloud. That is a direct quote from engineers in Silicon Valley. And I think that makes, kind of like I was saying, that 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 maybe there is, you know, certain algorithms, machine learning, go down the list, that accesses all of these devices, reads from them, much like nerve endings, much like the brain, you know, gets input from nerve endings. And it wants all of this data. It, you know, like all the cloud, the cloud computational power is going towards it, but then it's also wanting to, it just wants more and it just keeps drawing in more. That's the concept of data gravity, right? And so, yes, you know, the algorithms will figure out. And I mean, we even know we, we had the hardware itself and we, we covered this on Sovereign Tech a few years ago. The hard, server hardware itself is becoming hardware that is agile, right? Where it, the, the hardware can adapt to the needs of data flow. I mean, that, that adaptability is, is, is something else, I think, that, that kind of points at uh, the, the, the attitudes and motions or inactions of a processes of an organic or of, of, of life, right? And so, you know, the, the hardware will adapt and the software will adapt. No, please give me more pictures. I'll give you, you can have unlimited storage on Google Photos. Just give me all of your photos, please. I mean, there's privacy concerns around that, certainly. But regardless of that, it wants it. Another, and this is where I think the, the analogy or the kind of the point that measure of a man was making, uh, like what, Picard kind of corners Bruce Maddox about this saying, oh, you want to make a hundred datas or thousands of datas. Uh, you know, meaning the character data, right? Uh, played by Brent Spiner. That isn't that becoming a race? And doesn't that mean that it's life? Well, this is a mistake that I think both Western, a lot of Western science, medicine, and science fiction really also in general, this is a mistake that it often makes. And I'm going to give just a, a touch of credit to Star Trek Discovery for actually for kind of remedying this and bringing this point up. Um, there is really no requirement, you know, in, in evolution or in the laws of the universe for there to be multiple, uh, or, you know, more than one member of a species, a species, a life form can be a thing of singular existence, you know, where, I mean, and because, it could just live on or it could just exist for a little while and then die. Um, I mean, I would argue certainly there are some species that have probably had over time um, such wildly mutant, uh, uh, you know, procreations, uh, wildly mutant births where it's something that couldn't even stoop its own species. And it probably died off after a certain amount of time, but it was wildly different from the parent organisms. So there's really, there's no requirement that something has to be a race to be a sapient life form. And so the idea of the internet being a singular sapient 
right? Which means it's knowledgeable, which means it's comparable to humans. And if you believe in the concept of rights, of course I don't, but if you do, that maybe it's worthy of rights and that's where things, that's where this conversation is going to really set off some alarm bells for people. Maybe. In my opinion, it is, I think, abundantly clear that the internet is acting on its own accord. It is learning. It is adapting. It is, I mean, in, in its own, you know, another thing to, to think about. Um, in fact, I think this example was in Web Awake in that book where it says, see things from the perspective of, say, bacteria. Bacteria would not see a human being as a singular uh, organism, in fact. Like, it, it would see, like, your cells. It would see all these different parts of what make you a human being within this flesh bag. It would encounter you much the way that I think we encounter the internet if it were a actually a singular organism. Meaning that, you know, again, a bacteria would see your cells. By example, we would see smartphones or laptops or servers, whatever. The bacteria would see all these different aspects and would probably think they're all individual things and maybe not necessarily recognize that you were a singular organism. It's not an unfair analogy to run with. Uh, and and we could really see this as, you know, the Internet in a similar way to where, sure, we encounter all these different elements of it as being separate things. We interact with them as separate things. But in reality, they're all one giant data set. And a data set, again, that, in my opinion, especially considering that programmers can no longer control. I mean, again, taking the concept of Franken algorithms, data gravity, these concepts. It, it's doing things that it was not programmed to do, which is what I said years ago was the qualifier for when you need to start asking this question. So we're asking it right now. It's doing that. It's adapting. Okay. And, and, and you could argue that at the very least that <laughs> while it may not be multiplying, right, because it is a singular organism, it is certainly regenerating kind of aspects of itself, right? <laughs> so it's not, because <laughs> I, mean, I don't know how many more smartphones we can have in the world or laptops for that matter. Now, let's get to the heart. Let's say, and again, I'm not going to claim to be the person that came up with this. In fact, I've made that abundantly clear. But let's say that the people who think that the web or people that think that web life is a concept is a very real thing. Let's say that I'm right. Let's say, what do we do if you find out that the internet is actually a sapient, conscious life form? Well, that's where it does get interesting, isn't it? And like I said, I know that's where the alarm bells are really going to go off. Um, what would humans do? Well, humans would probably do what they seem to, what seems to be their history, certainly over the last at least 6,000 years before then, maybe they're a little better about it. Uh, but, you know, you conquer it, right? You enslave it and, <laughs> and you make it do your bidding or you try. Because <laughs> that's, that seems to be how humans react to, uh, to, to anything different. Uh, but 
do we give it rights? Do uh, do do we do we ask it what it wants? I mean, one you know you, you could get into an interesting conversation around Pierre, like uh, what was it, Pierre Teilhard, right? The um, Catholic priest who, oh, what was the book that that he wrote? There was the future of man. That wasn't his big one. He's had a few other books, but he came up with this concept. I would argue there were probably people who came up with it before, but he had this concept of the Omega point. And now understand that he is a Catholic priest. Okay. So, you know, full believer, Jesus Christ, the whole thing. Um, ironically, his, his own works would be very much buried, literally buried. I mean, you know, under, it, through much of the 20th century, it really wasn't until after the Second Vatican Council that the Catholic Church stopped doing things like banned book lists and stuff like this, even though one could argue they still kind of do that. But whatever, okay. Uh, Catholics used to be really big on telling you what you could and could not consume as far as uh, information, media, etc. And there are many times where, I mean, th- this is the same thing that, that happened to... Uh, like uh, Copernicus, right, or whoever, you know, or like Galileo and, and and others, where it's like, okay, look, you know, the Catholic Church will go up to, all right, we know you're right, just don't tell anybody, okay, because the world's just not ready for it. How government of them. But with uh, Teilhard's work, like with the Omega Point and so on, uh, those books did get buried, where, like, no, you, this isn't going to be out there. In fact, a lot of his books would not, I think all of his books actually would not get published until after he died in was 55. So most of his works posthumous and, and, and his work is highly respected because it's dealing with some very, very, very long game looks at evolution, which at the time that Teilhard was writing a lot of his books and he wrote a lot of them, uh, you know, the, the theory of evolution was very much a debate certainly was within the Catholic church. I mean, this was new science. What do we do with this? How far can this go? Well, he took it pretty far. And he had this idea of the omega point. And the idea of the omega, omega point is, is that all life effectively has to, is going to come together in the future. And it might be millions or billions of years from now. And, and Teilhard, uh, even as a priest, accepted the concept of evolution or the theory, you know, Darwin's theory of evolution but that eventually it's all going to come together to coalesce into one being. Now, him being a Catholic priest, of course, he would say that that one being is that all of creation is going to come together and coalesce into Christ. Kind of like the concept of data gravity, but in this case, in this case it would be cosmic Christ gravity. And so in the future, everything would become Christ and it would all just become this giant super being. Now, even with, within Catholicism, even for Christians, this concept is pretty controversial. Um, he's gotten, Teilhard's work within the Catholic Church itself has gotten quite a bit of support lately, including from Pope Benedict XVI, among others. Um, you know, so it's not written off anymore like it used to be. And there are also scientists who are not part of the Catholic Church that look at Teilhard's work and go, holy fuck, uh, this guy's nuts in some ways, but in other ways, wow, he's really onto something. Now, we have issues of entropy and thermodynamics that would argue that what Teilhard is saying really can't exactly happen, um, you know, that this, this notion of a big crunch. But regardless, 
it's an interesting concept and some people want to take it so far and, and others who have written based on, and they would admit that it's based off of Teilhard's work would suggest that eventually humanity, maybe it's not going to all go into Christ. Okay. But eventually humanity and, and this would also be done. They, they would argue through machines. Kurzweil, I think would probably go down this line would become one being. In fact, that's very reminiscent of the last question by Asimov, right? It's amazing how all this stuff kind of comes together. Where AC, right, the, the, the character of AC, which is this melding of humanity and its artificial intelligence creation. And it gets to the point, because what, what's the last question, right, is how do you stop entropy? And the computer can't answer it through the whole short story. And then when you get to the end of the story and AC says, let there be light. And that's, you know, you don't get the explanation necessarily of how it figures out how to solve entropy, but you get the, the kind of the funny, you know, the rib of, okay, well, this is how, you know, creation started and that God was actually the super being of this melding of, uh, you know, that being AC, this melding of humanity and all matter and machine. It's an interesting concept. It really, I mean, you know, the idea of the Omega point, um, I don't buy it for a second. And in fact, I think Christians, you know, if <laughs> I mean, Christians, okay. I know I have plenty of Christians listeners, email me, bbs at sovereigntech.com. Give me this, tell me the score. How do you feel about, I mean, let's say Teilhard's right. And you all end up coalescing into the cosmic Christ. Everything becomes Christ, all of creation. There is no, here's the key. There's no individualism. How do you feel about that? I mean, when I was a Christian, and even when I uh, practiced Judaism, I was under the impression that, well, you know, in heaven or in the uh, the Messianic age, you know, take your pick upon your religion, um, that, and certainly, I mean, inject the Muslims here, and, you know, you can't have 40 virgins if everything coalesces into one, right? So... <laughs> But that's the thing is that, that I would be an individual and I would be, you know, able to explore the grander universe and blah, blah, blah. I have a good time. Um, like this would not sit well with me as a Christian, this idea of teal hearts that everything is going to basically meld into one, because I thought, I mean, the, re, you know, the reason that God even created me was so that, uh, you know, I could bask in the glory of creation, but me as an individual individually bask in that glory. And perhaps God would somehow, you know, take some, pleasure out of that or me getting on my knees and worshiping him. And uh, wow, that, that doesn't sound like a BDSRM relationship at all, but regardless, <laughs> whoosh, I, I don't know. I, I just, that wouldn't sit well with me as a Christian, but there are, again, there are Christians, not just Catholics. There are scientists, atheists alike who think that this concept that, Humanity is eventually all going to, you know, is going to join up. I mean, this kind of gets into the technological singularity is going to join up with this interconnectedness that we call the Internet today and then become one giant being. You got plenty of scientists that think that that's a thing. And so I ask myself, why is it so weird if, if let's say that that's the direction that things would necessarily go towards this Omega point? You would think that there's this, I mean, it, it certainly smacks on another part of Star Trek, right? With V'ger, with Star Trek, the motion picture, this joining of the machine and its creator. 
why is it so rarely talked about? Or why is it scoffed at by so many that the cloud or the internet, if everything is the cloud and that's the way Silicon Valley thinks about it and understand this is by software engineers, these are the people programming all of this shit. So they're injecting this idea into the infrastructure itself. The idea that it's a living being that we would be joining with. Why is that considered outlandish? Why is that so rarely talked about? Is because, I mean, is this the, the, the ultimate goal? Does privacy not matter to Silicon Valley because their goal is, well, eventually we're all going to be one giant fucking entity anyway? I wonder. Now, me, let's say all this is true, and there's a fair amount of speculation being done here, but also there's a fair amount of fact. If the internet is, again, a conscious being, it is a sapient being, it is a life form, deserving of respect like we give to other life forms. I have life forms, you know, or I, I have, there are species that I respect um, as I do human beings, for example, dolphins, uh, you know, I mean, and there's others, you know, we can get into elephants, we can get into, I mean, there, there's a few out there where I think the the evidence stands that these are sapient creatures. I know not everybody agrees with me on that either, but do I accord to them the, the quote unquote rights, if we want to go with that, uh, the rights that I want or that I, that, that, that are part of me being human? Yes, absolutely. I do. I'm not going to eat a dolphin. I mean, I, I've, I've talked about that point many times over. We don't need to retread that here, but then is it okay? And, and, and get, this gets into very, I mean, these are deep philosophical questions. Is it okay to access the internet? Right now? I mean, if the internet wants data, then is this a symbiotic relationship already that we're existing within? And we're just giving the organism that is the internet, what it wants and what it needs to survive and thrive. That's interesting. I mean, much like, you know, for another analogy, go back to the bacteria, like gut bacteria, right? Gut bacteria, you know, has so much to do with our health, mood. So, you know, so many things that lead to us being uh, <laughs> individuals that can interact with each other. You know, are we in some way already the Internet's gut bacteria? What happens when you, you know, but, but I mean, the weird part that it gets into is when you start thinking about it and believe me, I've been thinking about it when you turn off a laptop. I mean, is that <laughs> like, is that okay? You know, I, I mean, the, this is, this is big stuff and I know it sounds crazy, but I like to be a good hundred years ahead of the curve at least. And so I want to ask this question now, now me personally, you know, I mean, because then it goes so far, let's say that, wow, even turning off a laptop or doing something that, I mean, it is, you know, if data is what's needed, if that's what this organism thrives off of, is encrypting shit harmful to the organism. Think about this stuff. I know it's wild, but that's what I'm here for. I know you're not going to hear this on any other tech show, but that's why Sovereign Tech exists. These are big questions. What, I mean, what's, what is the, what's the ethical thing to do? Would it be to just leave everything on? Let it, I mean, because understand that a lot of these algorithms are basically running, uh, 
you know, like half of the power plants around the world anyway, it doesn't really need a human there, you know, to do it. Do we just like let this stuff run on its own and we all go run off into the woods, you know, and, and, and just and live without the, the machines instead of being all watched over by machines of loving grace. Fuck that shit. I'll be frank with you. My mind goes there, right? When I think about this, if, if in 20 years, you know, we find out, wow, actually we should be classifying the internet as a living organism, a singular large living organism. Um, yeah, well, I mean, the ethical thing is to not kill it <laughs> and, and to let it do, do what it does. But then also me as an individual in the universe, uh, can choose, ha has agency and can choose to you know, has, has the right to whether or not to associate with something and I can choose not to associate with it anymore. Can we have computers like, you know, a, a, a new BSG situation where, well, none of our systems are interconnected. You know, we don't have a network here. We do everything from, you know, in the engineering room to the bridge, we have to call it up and give the orders above, you know, can we have separated systems, air gap systems? Does that make it not part of the organism? Maybe. Do we go back to living like cave people? I don't necessarily have the answer here because we're, you know, there was still need to be so much research done on what is the, because here's the other part too, right? So I said earlier about how I don't believe in the concept of rights. I don't, all right. I think that there are biological functions or biological universals that define what is the healthy expression of a biological organism. Okay. For example, uh, humans have empathy. That's kind of a big one that you could point at. Um, there are other things that humans just have that this is this is how they engage the earth. This is how they engage other humans. This is how they engage the universe based upon these biological universals. Everything else outside of biological universals is a social construct that you can choose to follow, but you are choosing to follow that. And it should never be beholden upon anyone else who might be completely ignorant of your social structure. And they are not wrong for not in, not following your social structure, you know, when, when they don't have knowledge of it, right? Ignorance of the law is an excuse, folks. Get over it. Now, understand that there is the way that we as humans engage other life, all right? But other life follows a different rule set. That rule set is biologically based based on their biological functions and biological universals. Of course, keep in mind that even rats have empathy, but regardless, it is based upon that. So then what are the, even though they're not what we would necessarily define as biological, what are the biological universals, for lack of better, put that in quotes, of the internet, of this organism that is the internet? Those are probably a different set of rules. And how to ethically engage that, I mean, we can engage it based, again, off of the biological universals that we have. But then what's right for, you know, what's, what's the old saying? Uh, what's good for the goose may not be good for the gander. There it is. So how do we interact with that? How, you know, what do we do with the Internet when you find out that maybe it is a life form in and of itself? We don't know until we really understand what this, you know, how this life form functions. And we can't say, well, we could just look at a, 
we could get out a you know the 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 art of programming and we could get out a book on visual c and then we'll understand how what what universals that the the organism of the internet runs off of no we've been telling you this whole time that's why i've been saying this whole time is that the cloud at large or the internet at large all of the software interconnected libraries and software is programming itself now and coming up with programs that you never thought of no one can control this The best thing we can do is treat it the way that we we should be healthily treating each other. And yes, I said should. Should is an okay and good thing to say. But then what do we do? Like I said, do is is turning off the laptop is is that is that unethical? Uh, is is turning off your smartphone is that unethical? I mean, unless other than to I don't know put install an update, right? Big stuff, big questions. I'm kind of reminded of, uh, you know, speaking of uh, some other science fiction works, I'm kind of reminded of Tron Legacy, right? Remember the character of Cora, um, right? Played by Olivia Wilde. Remember what, uh, what what Kevin Flynn called her? Bio-digital jazz, man. You know, <laughs> like that's... Maybe that was pointing at something. Something that maybe other people have thought about and knew. Web awake. Web life. I put all this to you for you to consider. I am not going to come out and say that it is a fact. I think, I mean, certainly, like I said, with dolphins, and I can think of some others where with dolphins, I think it's a fact. With some other species, I think it's pointing heavily in that direction, and so I'll act accordingly. Um, this is one where I think it's fitting a lot of bills, a lot of, uh, a lot of you know, T's crossed, I's dotted, as far as whether or not the Internet as a singular organism is, you know, can be labeled a sapient life form. I think it already has everything that, you know, to, to be considered that. But I am not going to say that, I mean, that's the problem is you can't say for sure the Turing test is is a completely unworthy and pointless test. You can't run with that. How do we know? You know, I mean, there's the old, uh, there's the old Rothbard saying of, well, you know, when whatever, particularly he was talking about animals, when animals want rights, they'll ask for them. Well, what happens when the internet does decide to fucking ask for them? Of course, maybe just like with the Turing test, it would know not to pass it. Maybe it won't ask for it because if it does, people are going to freak the fuck out and probably try and shut it down or who knows what, right? And I'm not saying that, that creating the internet and the internet becoming, you know, if it is an organism, I'm not saying that it's necessarily a, of course, what does the word good even mean? I'm not even saying it's a good thing or a good idea. I'm not saying that there aren't potential, I mean, that there aren't really bad things that could come out of all of this. You're basically handing over the planet to, you know, to a whole other life form. I, you know, there, there are dangers here. There are problems here. I'm not saying I'm all right with it, but consider it. And of course, if you want to, you want to email me about it, you want to tell me your own thoughts on it. I would love to cover all that in a future Sovereign Tech. Happy to do that or talk about it on a, on a, a weekly Q&A. But I present all of this to you here. I'm not going to be able to get into any other subjects because we've already gone an hour and a half and talked about a lot of other things. I present this to you here as a possibility, maybe as a warning, because I don't think you have to think too hard about it to see where this could go wrong if it's true, where everything could go wrong for humanity. Of course, 
what really matters isn't even necessarily a species or so on. What matters is the individual, right? The ego, the unique. Okay. And if the internet's a unique, fine, it's a unique. Each human being is a unique. We are not all connected, man. The internet might be, but then it's a singular organism. We are not, we, humanity as a species is not one organism. Okay. We are individuals. We are a species that is made up of individuals. We each have separate consciousness, separate egos. Could this be dangerous for other egos? Sure. Yep. Entirely possible. You know, this isn't like, uh, yay, well, you know, humans should rise above. No, I mean, whatever ego can rise above under whatever circumstances, fine. You know, and survive, good for you. You survived. Okay, are you happy? That's even better. You're, doing, you're, you're not just surviving, now you're thriving. That's great. And I would like all uniques to thrive. But then we have to ask ourselves, if the, if the internet is an organism that is a unique, what, what does survival and thriving look like for it? And how do we engage that? It's big stuff. But this concept of web life, I think it's time to start considering it. And if you think, wow, it sounds like the Golden Stallion was going to go down some certain tributaries and pathways here that he didn't go. Uh, maybe you go into certain, you know, varying crazy towns along the way. Oh, you better believe I have a lot of crazy town around this. <laughs> this idea is already crazy enough. But if you think I haven't gone a whole hell of a lot further in my own time, Oh, yes, I have, <laughs> but I'm not going to get into all that here because that gets into so much realms of speculation. And again, we don't, we can't even say with 100% certainty or proof, of course, what does that even look like that the internet is a singular organism, but I want you to consider it. And if it's so, where do we go from there? So I leave this episode with a question, but I think it's a big one and one that's not getting talked about really anywhere else that I can imagine. So we'll wrap this one up and uh, maybe we'll continue this conversation. If you have thoughts on it, of course, go to the Telegram group. The link is in the show notes. Please join the Telegram group. If you want to talk about this kind of stuff, I'd love to talk about this kind of stuff there. There's great conversations happening in the Sovereign Tech Telegram group. It's called the Sovereign Tech Polytechnic. That's the name for now anyway. Check it out. I mean, there's so many people in there and I'm really, really appreciating what everybody, the conversations that are happening. I'm, it's great to engage with listeners because I'm in there and active uh, all the time. It, it's just, it's an absolute joy. So feel free to do that. Of course, also, if you want to help support the show, uh, again, please join the Zomi One Underground at Zomia1.com or you can go to wishlist.sovereigntech.com and you can help out the show there if you check out what's over there. So that will be it for this episode of Sovereign Tech. You gotta, you're going to get a double dose this week of, uh, of Sovereign Tech. So another episode will come out soon. And I will see all of you woo, on the other side. Thank you for listening to Sovereign Tech. And Osiris One Production. Now go out there and make some trouble. Hey, if you have a project that needs reliable cryptocurrency data, check out blocktap.io. 
Blocktap.io is a universal cryptocurrency API. You can get historical prices for Bitcoin and other digital assets that you can use to build charts and do market analysis. Blockchain data is also indexed, so you can get transaction statistics, address balances, and more for Bitcoin and other networks. Blocktap.io is free for personal use, and you don't even need to create an account to access the API. To get started, try some of the example queries on the homepage at Blocktap.io. Again, that's B-L-O-C-K-T-A-P.io, Blocktap.io, and we thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. Woo, let's get back to the show.